This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hi and welcome to a special episode of the MDT podcast. I'm Dr Joe Preston. And I am Dr Ian Wilkinson. And this is special episode is called MDT and Cake, which stands for Conference and Knowledge Exchange. So they're kind of special episodes that we're doing from either conferences or special editions based on maybe some new research or anything like that that's come out. So this one is from Glasgow. Yeah, which was the Autumn British Geriatric Society mm. conference. And it was taking place in the SECC conference venue mm-hmm. in Glasgow. It also had a Frozen exhibition it or did. something yes, happening, yes. which is quite apt because yes. it's freezing It was here. really, really cold. And so we are going to go through each of the sessions that we went to during the conference. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to hear some bits of us talking about the, the, the talks we went to, some bits of other people talking about the talks we went to. Just give you the kind of main nuggets of what kind of happens at these conferences, really. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll put some tweets, well, we have already put some tweets, tweets out yeah. from uh, the conference. And we're going to keep it really focused to uh, stuff that's relevant to the multidisciplinary team. So there may be some sessions that we skip over if they're a bit sort of overly medical or a bit overly sort of one specialty over another. Um, So we'll try and keep stuff that's really relevant to everyone. To everyone, yeah. The MDT Podcast. So we're at the BGS conference and this is the autumn meeting. Yes, in Glasgow. Uh, in Glasgow in November 2016. Yes, it's pretty cool. And Gemma and I are here and we're going to talk through the first couple of sessions from the day. Yeah, so this morning started, well the whole day today actually is hospital at home. It's been quite interesting, isn't it? It's been really good, yeah. yeah. Um, and the first session was from Professor Sarah Shepherd, uh-huh. who um, works in Oxford and is doing a... Uh, part of a randomised control trial looking at hospital at home services. Yeah, and there's and been I'm, a Cochrane review she was involved in. Yes, she was, yeah. She was telling us a bit about that. And she started off by really giving a broad definition of what hospital at home is. Yeah. And she talked about it being a service which provides an alternative to admission, um, which can be there both as a step up and a step down yeah. service from hospital. So something that can pull people out of hospital but also stop people needing to go into hospital. Yeah, and both she and a few other people were quite conscious not to call it emission prevention programmes. Yes. So yes. this isn't about denying people that should be um, admitted to hospital hospital admission if they need it, but about finding alternative pathways or yeah. alternative ways of delivering that care. And that's super important at the moment because one of the things you said is that the length of stay for people over the age of 85 has mm. started to increase over the last couple of years. And they did a survey as part of their scoping exercise, and a third of the areas that they looked at um, within the country had some form of hospital at home service, but they called it different things. Yeah, that's a problem. Everywhere you go, things are different. Yeah. So in some places it was called simply intermediate care. Yeah. Other places it was uh, care home in-reach services. Yeah. Other places it was somewhere much more coordinated. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with studying it. That she's found really hasn't it? Yes. Kind of getting people to get involved, and, and one of the reasons that she's doing this control trial. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Yes. It'll yeah. probably be a few years before that really uh, get any results. Yeah, I think that. they're looking to recruit fifteen hundred people, aren't they? Yeah. They've got five hundred people so far. So anyone that works in one, um, we'll put her contact details on our website. Yeah. 
there were then three sort of case studies of different mm. places in the country where there are some form of hospital home, uh, home services. And the first was Graham Ellis, who works up in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And for me... He's the main CGA manager. He's the so. chap that does a lot on comprehensive general assessment, which we've talked about, and I think he was involved with the Cochrane reviews on comprehensive general assessment. And for me, the, the key thing that stood out from what he said was about it's about the importance of people both recruiting the right people uh, retaining people getting them up to speed and then having leaders in your service yeah and uh, some of the later tweets i saw this afternoon in a session that i wasn't in was about um really promoting that as well and saying actually this is about people's boundaries in the team's um, shifting, but also yes. planning for things shifting in the future, yes. not just saying, well, this is a good team we've got now. One of the examples of that is a team who uh, were saying that the boundaries of the MDT members had blurred quite a lot, wasn't it? That they were saying yes. that pharmacists were doing blood pressures. And the exactly, yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's come out on all of the things today is actually the blurring of the boundaries between the different members of the team. Just teams. to whatever that person needs, um, and kind of upskilling between the team. Or sharing the skill set between the yeah. team for, for whatever is needed. And that's meant that um, teams like the Hospital at Home team at Guys in St Thomas's and various other places are able to respond very quickly and go and see someone at home um, to do that initial assessment. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's really sunk through is about the importance of communication. Yeah. But both um, sort of getting hold of patients' records, be yeah. that electronically or paper-based, yeah. and then putting an intervention in by the hospital at home team and then communicating that back to someone else so that for example if the hospital at home team have come along and delivered and given the patient their insulin Mm. the district nurse doesn't come along later and do the same thing and overall the evidence is coming out that that hospital at home teams probably do reduce admissions and probably save money by doing that so that links in quite nicely with um, something that I tweeted earlier, which was when you're evaluating the quality of a service, there are lots of different domains. So some of the things we've seen today have kind of presented one or two of them, but um, just to kind of be a bit of a nerd and run through them now is um, looking at the safety of a service, the effectiveness of it, is it patient-centred, is the uh, care timely, is it efficient and is it equitable? So actually yeah. evaluation in any of those um, areas is useful. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And one of the sessions today, uh, Angela Robinson, who's a consultant up in Fife, was talking about their hospital at home service. And they've actually made a patient's video, a video of a patient's story of one of the patients that they looked after. We're going to put a link on the website. Yeah, and we'll put a link on that uh, attached to this. Mm. Jaideep Kitson did a fantastic talk um, about the service in Wales, mm, about yeah, Hospital at Home. Really I thought it was really inspirational. I'd, and just the way he delivered it was great. Yeah. And I think one of the things that he said was talking about managing your expectations of yeah. the stakeholders when you set up a new service. What are you going to be able to deliver? What can you deliver? What can't you yeah. deliver? And make that as clear as possible, I guess before you open up your service yeah because if you're absolutely flooded then people will stop referring quite quickly yeah and they'll say that this service doesn't work because it takes ages to get stuff and again the key point from that service and the one in Fife and the one at Guides and St Thomas's that Mm. were all highlighted really is the range of skills that each person in the team has yeah and the manager of the guys and St Thomas's service had a really nice thing that she said uh, that when she's training her staff whoever they are whether or not they're a, a nurse or a doctor or a therapist they have two sort of questions and this I guess came through from a couple of the talks but one is when you walk into the room is 
is this safe? Can I keep this person at home? Mm-hmm. And then the second is when you leave the patient, think to yourself, can this patient get to the toilet? Can they get a drink and such like mm. between now and when the next person is meant to come? Because yeah. that next person, if it's a hospital at home service, might be you tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and are they safe for that time between now and then? Yeah, it's really important, isn't it? So it's not just about can we treat this condition, it's can this person be safe at home as well. Yeah. yeah. There's some really interesting talks today. There's been lots of overlap between them, but I think that's the kind of summary of lots of them. Um, the afternoon was slightly different. It was still on the community theme, wasn't it? But yes. um, a few different aspects. So, yeah, jumping to the final talk um, that I went to, um, I went to community geriatric care, new roles for new care models. And they were talking about this um, in an extensivist team, which is part of a Vanguard site. Um, and someone had said to me the other day, um, have you seen this BMJ advert for extensivist? What does that even mean? I was like, I have no idea. But I learnt. And so the extensivist role is um, kind of providing extensive care for people in primary care essentially so the team has a geriatrician it also has a, an extended role kind of GP who um, went from having uh, 10 minute appointments to 45 minute appointments and the whole team is aimed at um, a kind of blurring of boundaries essentially so they had a someone who was a nurse by background had been a practice nurse um, for quite some time who uh, took on more of an advanced nurse practitioner role and kind of trained into that there was an OT who was able to take blood and same time do kind of basic assessments for things um so she'd obviously do a bit of a uh, kind of combined ot physio and nursing assessment while she was there kind of just what the person needed i thought that was quite nice actually um they had a care coordinator as well and then they had uh, well-being coordinators as well who could come from a variety of different backgrounds and what struck me in that is that actually and in lots of these talks we were it's looking at yeah, coming out of your silo of what did you train in and what do you do now is what does this person need and what do I have the skills for and it kind of got me thinking lots of the kind of skills that you need to do your job are actually quite transferable it's the kind of education or like knowledge bit that you've been trained in a little bit more you know be you a nurse or a physio or occupational therapist or a pharmacist actually lots of those managerial skills the teamwork skills and, and things are quite transferable so at a basic level you can kind of take on a bit of a, a transfer which I thought was really interesting. Mm. It's kind of interesting to think about things. It made me think, and I tweeted this, and, and I got a few retweets but no um, responses because it may have been a bit too controversial, was what about in the future, what if we had people who were trained in MDT, what if we had people that were trained in geriatric MDT working? That was the specialty. So you were a Band 5 geriatrics team member, and then you would bring in your specialist OT if you needed that whatever and actually I thought that was a really interesting um, thought I don't know if that's practical I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon but to an extent it's not actually out of the realm of ridiculousness I think it's certainly one of the <laughs> cross-cutting themes today <laughs> is about he doesn't agree that's what his face was just saying <laughs> well I think there are some core skills that an occupational therapist has that are different to a physiotherapist which are different to a nurse or a speech therapist or a doctor or other members mm. of the MDT but there are huge amounts of um, areas where we can all have input and I think that was one of the, the cross-cutting mm. themes today actually was breaking down some of this silo working mm. and go well this is my job and just like yeah. well actually no it's not we, we can all blend together and, and there is a, yeah. a, a large amount of crossover absolutely. between the, the roles yeah. absolutely and I think that comes with experience and obviously lots of people going into these teams have already got the experience that they've worked with other people in those roles what I'm saying is what if you just trained people to have cross-sectional skills and the, what you think <laughs> 
and the, the other session that I went to whilst that last one went on yeah. was one that I was chairing and it was about telemedicine mm. and looking really as a case study at the service that's provided in Airedale mm. so they have two strands to this broadly speaking one of which is a service that goes into care homes that is a uh, telehealth or telemedicine service yeah. so at one side you've got the patient and the carer in the care home mm-hmm. on a camera and at the other end you've got a digital hub where there are highly qualified nurses so originally they started off with there being critical care outreach nurses um, but they're sort of band seven nurses mm-hmm. at the other end who are able to take histories uh, suggest initial investigations that can be done suggest initial management plans um, liaise with the GP if that's what's needed they have the ability to say well you know it looks like this person might be a bit dehydrated can we push some fluids for the next couple of hours and I'll call you back in two hours and we'll have another video consultation okay. to see how this person is then um, and they're producing excellent results okay. really really good um, and it's a commercial partnership with a with a, um, a digital innovation company mm-hmm. and they're doing great things and so they've then taken that idea and then rolled it out as part of the gold standards framework and so they have what's called a gold line which is a telephone line for any patient who is thought to be in the last year of their life. Which is, to clarify anyone that hasn't uh, heard of it, the Gold Standards Framework is um, a kind of database of people that GPs hold, um, of people who are anticipated to be in their last year of life. Yeah, and they work with the palliative care team, and so people can call up this line with any problem at any time okay. of day or night, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's also leading to fantastic results with an increase in uh, patients dying where they want to die okay. and a reduction in yeah and a reduction in the amount of deaths that occur in hospital okay sounds really interesting yeah it's it amazing yeah. really really good it was, it was great cool and then so there were uh, there's two other sessions and um, so i went to a very geeky one which was on health economics what did you go to I went to a session, we've kind of covered it already, it was about how to do the hospital at home service. Oh, okay, fine. So I went to health economics. I'm not going to talk about it too much, partly because it would be quite difficult to explain. So I'm just going to talk about one point from that, which I thought was really interesting. And um, They've done lots of modelling work that was, was really really quite cool, I thought. And they were looking at how NICE recommends treatments, and they use something called quality-adjusted life years, and how much an intervention might um, cost versus how effective it might be in terms of how many quality-adjusted life years that a person might live. So that's how things work. Generally, it's how things get approved. They took it one step further and they said, OK, well, in, in our population, that isn't necessarily all that helpful um, because they may understandably be in, uh, towards the end of their life. They developed this new one called uh, LAYLA, which is L-Y-L-H-A, which stands for Life Years Lived at Home. It's quite nice. Lovely. And they found that correlated quite well. Quality of life at home, though, does it? No, but you could have your quality as well. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was actually really quite a nice thing as a, an intervention for for to kind of maintain in, independence for someone. That was the, the main thing that I'd kind of bring back from that one. Brilliant. That's the end of day one. Yes. So we will be back with uh, the next little bit, which for us will be in 12 hours' time and for you will be in a few seconds' time, <laughs> um, starting tomorrow morning. And I'm planning on attending the National Hip Fracture Database session, yeah. uh, which is a satellite symposium tomorrow morning. Yeah, I haven't decided if I want to get that that earlier. We'll see. The MDT Podcast. 
So we're the second day of the BGS in Glasgow today and we have got with us some other people from the conference to give us their opinions on what they've been seeing, what they've been liking. We're going to just go through from the beginning from the first point this morning. So the first session was the uh, hip fracture falls and fragility session. Very much my sort of thing. Your sort of thing completely. And what did you think of it? I thought it was really, really good. Um, It went through some good data from the uh, the National Hip Fracture Database, mm. and then also uh, Helen Wilson from Guildford then talked about her service, uh, which has got a phenomenally low mortality rate. And so she was talking about how yeah, they've achieved that yeah. over the last few years. Cool. Yeah, and um, I came in at the end of that, um, but I, you know I like data, so it was good for me to see. Did anyone else go to that? Yes. So I'm Joe Jennings. I'm a physiotherapist. I work as Ortho Geriatric Advanced Clinical Practitioner. I went to that as well, and I think the key thing for me that is to make sure that your ASA grade is correct, that it's not just being written by a coder who wasn't sure and is guessing, mm-hmm. because that's how they adjust the case mix mortality. It's an interesting point about lying and standing blood pressure. I think that came up at that, that everyone's measuring lying and standing blood pressure differently. Mm. And they talked about how someone had said you had to lie down for half an hour and then you had to take it seven times when the person (laughs) stood up. And you could understand then why no one was doing lying and standing blood pressure. But they said there's some guidance coming out soon, but that you should lie down for five minutes, take the first um, standing blood pressure between 0 and 1 minutes, and then again at 3 minutes. Mm. So it's nice to have a consensus of what we should be yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be really useful, wouldn't it? Yeah, and that's one of the things that I always go on symptoms, because um, it's about one-third of the time that you don't necessarily catch the blood pressure drop, which I think is because of those methodological, like, literally, how are you doing it? They've got good symptoms. For me, that's enough, even if I don't catch the blood pressure. Yeah, about everyone else yeah uh, so then next were two parallel sessions uh, one was sarcopenia and frailty and another was more orthogeriatrics um, surface development side so should we stick with the orthogeries for now yep who else went to that same people <laughs> <laughs> spot the orthogeriatrics yeah, services. Right. yes absolutely I thought that that whole session tallied really nicely actually with the the, the session first thing mm. and again many of the things I think were quite similar about the cohesiveness of the teams working together mm-hmm. and some of the evidence behind the uh, mortality reduction that's come from the uh, introduction of the hip fracture database. I'm Bryony Elliott, consultant orthogeriatrician at St George's in London and what was really interesting is the Scottish guys spoke about the fact that they'd had a database and then stopped it because the funding ran out and all of their you know, outcomes yes. deteriorated as a consequence of that so they've now reintroduced their database um, which is very very similar to the National Hip Fracture Database sort of shows the importance of ongoing review of your data and and persevering with service improvement. I thought um, Professor Dawn Skelton's Mm. practical example uh, was very useful where we all stood on one leg and closed our eyes and a few people nearly fell over and she said those of you that nearly fell over you're the future fallers you need to do something now about your balance <laughs> yeah, it was. I actually texted my dad about that <laughs> I get on one leg now <laughs> and one of the things in that was that the evidence behind strength and balance training is there as long as you follow the Otago program or some of the things we've talked about in the, the false mm-hmm. prevention episodes um, but that the the dose, if you like, is 50 hours of uh, strength and balance training, mm, um, which is 
it's quite a lot mm. but it makes sense I think because you know muscles aren't going to be built overnight yeah and she did say that if you underdose so you don't get the 50 hours because you're encouraging the patients to be active and to start taking risks they do take those risks but their balance hasn't improved enough and then they fall and so you get this feeling that the exercise didn't work or it's bad for you even yeah. Yeah. yeah and also the other thing that came out of her lecture was about um sort of harm-free falls and actually if we're getting people up and mobilizing well especially in a hospital environment mm. and rehabbing them well that we should expect some falls you know, and she pointed out how many of us in the room had fallen in the last year and it was about 60% of us and we were you know, young, relatively fit people. So stop thinking about falls as a bad thing and just um, sort of a bit of a mind shift about yeah. that. I was just thinking with the, when you start moving after a falls programme, balance thing starts, I guess it's a bit like starting a new drug and expecting some side effects and warning people. Mm. These are side effects you can have, but they're going to settle as you... Yeah, keep going yeah. with it. Yeah, I guess. And then the the second session uh, was on sarcopenia and frailty. Mm. So I'm guessing everyone else went to that. <laughs> uh, so let's talk through that session. I'm Abigail Taylor. I'm nurse practitioner um, for older adults. I'm working front end frailty. Um, one of the challenges for us, so I got a lot out of this session, is how we measure um, or identify patients um, who are frail um, with sarcopenia. And um, something me and my consultant have taken away is that we are actually going to try and measure grip strength at front end because it's a really quick and easy uh, validated way. Um, and then we'd like to tie that in with we, we do have strength and balance training available to us, which is a 12-week programme, I think, <coughs> isn't it? So that's something we've taken away from that. So that, that was excellent because um, we've looked at various tools and we've... We've struggled in emergency areas to, to find quick and easy ways of, of assessing people. I'm Lorna Martin. I'm a physio in day hospital in Dunfermline. And I like that as well, the key message about grip strength being a diagnostic measure of, of um, sarcopenia. And in day hospital, we do measure gait speed. And we did a study on gait speed and looking at frailty and levels of frailty when they started day hospital and then after completing a course of treatment which on average was about 12 weeks there was a massive difference in people not being frail just using the 0.8 metres per second gait speed measure so I think what we're going to take away from this today is to look at grip strength and just see how that measures as to um, how many people are frail in day hospital how many people aren't frail and after treatment what the difference is so thought it was very good and excellent session this morning. Um, hi, I'm Lucy Lewis. I'm an older person's practitioner at Southampton. And um, it was good just to hear about the interventions um, to sarcopenia and frailty that would include things like um, resistance exercise and nutrition as well as drug developments, incorporating that into CGA and uh, using a life course approach as well. That's about following someone through their life and sort of identifying maybe earlier on in their life what can be done to prevent them getting frail later on. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to CGA consensus group, but I had to come away because we had a poster, so I actually was only there for about an hour, so I didn't get through the whole session. But it was quite interesting. They were presenting an updated Cochrane review on the benefit of CGA, um, keeping people alive and independent in their own homes. Um, at three and 12 months and there was a nice qualitative study um, that they presented showing that joint working enables learning from each other 
across kind of disciplinary boundaries, which I guess is what we're all about and what we all know. Um, but it's quite nice to see it kind of come out in a qualitative study. and adds a different dimension to the quantitative stuff that we normally see. And then just before the very nice lunch we just had, uh, there were a couple of sessions as well. So there were research platforms and then thyroid disease. My name's Annabelle. I'm an occupational therapist at Imperial College in the care of older people's wards. Um, the one I liked the most from the research platforms was the um, session by, well, I think it was Marcel Torba-Gilmore's um, project about dignity and dignified care for older people. Um, and they used the quiz, um, which I forget now what on earth that stands for, but it's to in- uh, rate the interactions that um, older people are seeing on the ward. And I thought that was really crucial work and really interesting to hear um, and lots of information about actually when you feed back the responses to dignity questionnaires and things like that to the staff there's a lot you have to do in terms of managing their reaction and, and, and learning from it um, just a little point though for that one was that I think they focused a lot on the nursing team and actually as we know these are MDT um, situations so I think I'm sure the lessons could have been learned from a wider team because yeah. the, the feedback they put a lot of effort into doing the feedback didn't they but yeah. they only did it to the nursing staff yeah. they, they missed out all the other interactions that, that go on exactly and that was a bit of a shame but a, a, you know a great project I thought yeah. really really important yeah some of the qualitative the quotes in that talk I thought oh, were really cool. good really powerful weren't they? Mm, yeah and the thing was it was to do with continence wasn't it that, that yeah. the the thing that affects patients view of their dignity the most was uh, their degree of continence and I'm sure we can all understand that ourselves as well you know actually your whole hospital stay even if you're there for 10 days actually one embarrassing incident and actually you know it's ruined your whole experience experience. Mm, absolutely from the patient that said their um, definition of dignity was being treated like I was somebody so it shows the importance of listening to patients and giving them time to answer um, um, to answer, ask questions and answer questions and make them feel that they're listened to. I thought it was really good that they'd used the feedback that they'd got to make it real-life scenarios. So they've got a drama group to come in and recreate those scenarios with those staff and then make the staff make them positive. I thought that was a fantastic tool. And I'm going to send her an email and mm. ask that she videoed it. So, uh, yeah, I want to steal it. <laughs> Those, those videos, I think, will be they are available, aren't they? So we'll we'll see if we can track them down as well, and we'll put them on the website. It links into a thing that was at um, a Science of Improvement uh, conference earlier this week, and they used examples of situations on the wards for something called appreciative inquiry. I think it's called, mm. which I haven't heard of before or used. But it sounds really good, where you have a scenario like that, and instead of concentrating on what went badly, you concentrate on what went well, and how could you do that better, and what could you do to make that better in the future, and, and have much more positive spin on things, which I. Th- that was really interesting. I think Richard Dodd's one uh, for me was interesting. He was talking about the prevalence and incidence of sarcopenia in the very elderly people. I guess there was lots in there that was that was interesting, but one of the things was he had a Venn diagram looking at grip strength and muscle mass and gait speed and that not everyone that's frail has all of those things and that some people may only have one or two of those bits and that sort of builds in with your definition of the severity of the frailty as to um, sort of the degree that people have of all of those things. I went to this really because for me it's it's to enhance my knowledge because it's an area 
you know, I look at I look at blood results and I think, mm. so it was really good. And the pitfalls and the interpretation and all the different things that can cause that abnormal result has really made me think. Actually, yes, we look at results and we probably just take them as read. And we, you know, so I'm certainly going to uh, analyse uh, blood results a little <laughs> bit more and probably call an endocrinologist would be my uh, top tip. I think there's a, if you use the hashtag BGSConf, there was a really good summary slide that he had. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have tweeted the picture of that slide yeah. of, of all the possibilities on the thyroid function test. That session, but I liked the tweets that were coming out of it. There's a couple of pictures that were really good. I think one of my favourite tweets I saw was a double espresso um, affects the absorption of your thyroxine. So don't have a double espresso with your thyroxine in the morning. Or, or your calcium <laughs> tablet. And then that brings us up to the lunchtime. The lunch was nice. It's very good, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, we were going to go to the afternoon session now, and so we'll uh, fill you in on that a little bit later on. The MDT Podcast. So we're going to talk you through the afternoon sessions. So the first one we went to was delirium, uh, which was split into two sections, one which was about recognition, prevention and management, uh, which is talking about the 4AT score quite a lot, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, I think that one that. of the things for me from that was... this. this sorry, this was done by Elizabeth Teal, who's a, a clinical senior lecturer in Bradford. Mm. And one of the things that she was talking about, as we said, was the 4AT test as an identification tool for delirium, mm-hmm. but also talking about how delirium really can be picked up by any member of the MDT. Yeah. It's not just, you know, something for doctors or nurses or therapists to pick up. Actually, mm. we can all do something about this. And that from the management side, essentially there's no drugs research treatment. that shows any drugs no. work. People have looked at whole hosts of different types of drugs. Yeah. But all they really do is sedate your mm. patient. So and and what she said which was quite nice was the drugs turn a hyperactive delirium when someone's agitated mm. and up and about into a hyperactive yeah. delirium so it just keeps them quiet it doesn't, it keeps them take, quiet. It doesn't take away the problem no. which is uh, what we should be looking for is yeah. what's causing it and then how do we manage that and keep them safe and treat the underlying uh, trigger and she used a really nice analogy uh, like the principle of marginal gains yeah and the idea of a tipping point for delirium, a threshold, yeah. which is something that we talked about in the delirium episode. We did, yeah. Um, so we, we won't go through it again, but if you want to know a bit about that, go back to episode two, which yeah. was all on delirium. Mm-hmm. And then the second half of that session was by Dr. Michael Ferkelman, who's a consultant geriatrician at St. Mary's Hospital in North London. And that was talking about the neuroinflammatory aspect of delirium. So the kind of uh, there's a theory that neuroinflammation is what drives delirium, which I really liked. Mm. The geek in me really enjoyed that. And the the idea that that is hypothesized and is supported by some animal studies is that you have an insult to the body, whatever that is, and that results in the release of inflammatory markers like um, cytokines. They then cross the blood-brain barrier and then cause uh, some of the cells in the brain well, some of the cells in the brain aren't able to inhibit that inflammation. So it goes on to cause inflammation within the brain. Um, and that is the hypothesised cause for delirium. Or the process for how it yes, happens yeah. and affects brain global brain function. Um, and there was some benefits. research that anti-human necrosis factor medications help in mice. Yeah. But obviously most delirium, well not most delirium, but an awful lot of delirium happens and a lot of the studies are done in patients who've had hip fractures. And you don't want to be giving 
immunosuppressant drugs to people immediately yeah. following the surgery. So, or if they've it, got an infection <laughs> that's yeah, causing exactly. them to lose. Exactly. So it may not be a practical solution, but interesting. But it's a start. Yeah. yeah. That talk I thought was really good. Actually, it was it was quite yeah. science focused, but it was it was really good. Really and one of the things, way. yeah. And one of the really nice things is he was talking about. It's very exciting. The more nuanced delirium assessment tools that you use in research and how the 4AT and the CAM and things that we'd we'd use routinely on the ward are quite binary so someone has delirium or they don't Mm. it doesn't tell you anything about the severity of the delirium where some of the the other tools tell you a bit more about how severe it is or not yeah but for practical day-to-day use they're not really useful because they yeah well also the tools they've got sort of 60 parts to them and so it's not something you can do on a ward yeah in a day-to-day setting and then finally um the last session was the clinical effectiveness session which i was chairing chairing i was yes um and what that was is it comes from the abstracts in the clinical quality or submitted to the clinical effectiveness area so lots of the posters that um are presented at the conference are through this so it's areas that people have tested out something or tried something new and evaluated it to see if it works there there were four presentations there one was looking at overtreatment of older adults living in care homes uh, for their type 2 diabetes and finding that actually they're really overtreated to their HbA1c targets, which is a blood test that you do to look at longer term control of blood sugar. So they're overtreated, so their blood sugars might be too low. Yes, causing them to have low blood sugar needing mission to hospital then when actually the guidance is that if you've got a few comorbidities that the you loosen the hba1c yeah. and if they've got cognitive impairment as well um and i can't remember the exact guideline that comes from but um you'd be able to google it i think that's interesting isn't it because often well sometimes there are differences of opinion as to how tightly to control people yeah. with diabetes i know the endocrinology teams generally want people really quite tightly controlled mm. Um, with their blood sugars, you know, in a in a very low range, whereas sometimes geriatricians are a bit more so, yeah. looser. So what, but it does depend on what's going on with your patient at the time. Because yeah. if someone's got an infection, the tighter you control their blood sugars, the quicker they clear infection, and their chances of recovering mm-hmm. from it are better. Well, um, there are some studies that that say that really tight glycemic control doesn't help and can make things worse like some ITU studies and things yeah, yeah. how well that translates to ours um, but you might run a higher blood sugar but if someone had an infection I see what you're saying you wouldn't want it higher because yeah yeah but actually infection. yeah if you have yeah exactly your, your infection thrives um, on thrives on a higher sugar so it's a, energy yeah. resource uh, a couple of the others so one was looking at a falls reduction project on the acute elderly medical ward and this was really mm. beautiful mm. it was really really nice and um, they basically employed qi methodology um so that's quality, quality improvement, improvement yes yeah. um using things like plan do study act cycles things like that um again so that's where they they plan plan something they decide they what they want to do they plan the how they're going to do it they do it yeah they study the change yeah and then they act on it yeah and, and then so you, they so do you it again. can make quite small changes each time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did. And again, it was lots of incremental gain stuff. So they picked a ward that had very, very high falls rates for their for their hospital. Um, morale on that ward was known to be quite um, poor. Um, falls was just one of the issues on the wards, but it was the one that was being flagged up. There was a lot of negative attitude on the ward about what could be achieved and that they, they wouldn't be able to go a day without um, mm. a patient falling on, on there. They just felt it was completely un, undoable. And they employed loads of just small different things. Again, we talked about this in the falls episode that we did in the first series. Yeah. 
so lots of the things that they did weren't particularly groundbreaking but it was a way that they did it that it was the whole team was involved they had huddles each day and they'd say okay that identifying the huddles who are our, our highest risk of falls today so not people that are just risk assessed to be high but the people that they were worried about today what are we going to do for that person today and they did that and they managed to get the falls rate down quite significantly and they managed i think at peak to get to 26 days without a fall 26. 26 that's really good days, yeah. yeah and at the beginning they felt as a team they couldn't they employed lots of different things like identifying the person with falls with a big yellow f near their bed um my favorite thing that they did though was to change their red slippy socks to yellow socks okay so as they're walking around the ward you could identify oh that person's high risk of falls so um actually while they're on the move and they're not next to their big f near yes. their bed yes. so really practical small things like that beautiful i think it worked really really well um and the other one was something called the forward care bundle and the forward stands for feeding via the oral route with acknowledged risk of deterioration and this was something again on elderly care wards um supported by speech and language therapists predominantly and it was uh, kind of a, a sheet of paper that they used to document what were the risks what was the plan what conversations had happened with the patient and the family about uh, risk feeding so it was very clear for everyone that those discussions had taken place um and how they were going to proceed and what they found was that the length of time that people were nil by mouth pending that decision to happen dropped significantly so they went on average from about four days being nil by mouth waiting for a decision to be made down to sort of zero or one day Really I think good. nutrition's becoming a, I sort of have a feeling that there's a groundswell of opinion that yeah. nutrition's going to be a real focus of one of these conferences yeah. soon because the, there were two posters from the team in Southampton who have been uh, researching the effects of mealtime assistance on a care of the elderly wards mm. um, and they, they had two posters, one looking at the um, sort of the satisfaction from the patient side and I think the other one was looking at the assistance why they do it and, and such like um, the abstracts are will be online yeah um, when on the, the conference BGS website abstracts go online www.bgs.org.uk yeah and they all the abstracts will go into the uh, supplement for the age and aging yeah if you were there and there's anything we missed let us know um, anything you particularly liked we'll probably put some bits and pieces on the website as well yeah. which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk and our Twitter uh, which you can follow for all of this uh, is mdt underscore podcast and the hashtag for the conference is bgsconf which is bgsconf Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. 